Hi, everybody. Uh, this is Joe uh, for the episode five of the Piragaji podcast. And today we are joined by Yasmin Budioff and Paula Ricarte, um, who I would love it if they would introduce themselves in the order I just said, um, so that the audience knows who they are. And just everyone, please remember this is a video podcast when you have video, but it also goes by audio. So people may not see what you see. So if you have to describe something, feel free. But uh, yeah, please take it away, Yasmin. Okay, hi, uh, thank you, Joe. Uh, hi, Paula. Um, my name is Yasmin Budia. I'm a creative technologist based in London. I do computational art at Goldsmiths University. I organize with No Tech for Tyrants, um, and I'm also a visiting fellow at the Ada Lovelace Institute, where I'm looking at uh, the ethics of AI specifically AI justice. Um, and I'm working on ways of having discussions around designing ethical frameworks that uh, truly benefit everyone involved. Uh, that's pretty much it for me. And Paula, who I know quite well, but uh, some people in the audience uh, may, may not know her as well as I do. So please go for it, Paula. Uh, thank you very much, Joe. My name is Paola Ricaurte. I'm based in Mexico City, but I'm originally from Ecuador. I teach at Tecnológico de Monterrey, um, the Department of, of Media and Digital Culture. Um, I'm also a faculty associate at the Bergman Klein Center for Internet and Society. And um, I'm also co-founder with Nick Coldry and Ulises Mejias of the Tierra Común Network, uh, an initiative to think and, and, and organize around uh, data decoloniality uh, and um, in the global south. And I also belong to the A Plus Alliance. Uh, a global alliance to think about feminist um, AI um, and feminist ethics in AI. Um, and I'm super happy to be here. So, so I, I wanted, first of all, to introduce the two of you because I felt that that would be good. So I did that a while ago by, by email. And I know we've been wanting to have this, this chat for a while. So this is the first, uh, first um, podcast after the holiday break. Um, so yeah, I, I would say, although it's a bit of an interview, it's really uh, hopefully a slightly facilitated discussion between the two of you. So if I have a slightly light touch, it's because I really hope that you'll have, have an opportunity to, to get to know each other um, as well as just share some background. So yeah, um, and and um, by the way, the, these slides don't move around by themselves. Charlotte is, is uh, they're producing as usual. So um, thank you, Charlotte. Um, but yeah, the, the first kind of interview question or really discussion question is how do you think about data ethics and epistemology. So um, it, it's not necessary maybe to define these terms, but I, I got the I got these words from a paper by Paolo called Data Epistemologies, the Coloniality of Power and Resistance. So so maybe uh, Paolo, if you wouldn't mind kind of going first, how did you how did you choose such an interesting title and, and how do you combine these topics in that in that paper? Uh, thank you, Joe. Um, yeah, I wrote this paper because I was trying to uh, think around the way data epistemologies are the way we see the world right now. And 
for me, uh, it's very important to to challenge the idea of of data or datification of society uh, as the only way of existence in this moment of the history. And also, um, I address the problem of of creating universal worldviews through data and specifically Western worldviews as universal worldviews through datification and through data. Uh, so what, I, what I'm trying to do and going back to the ethics and ethical frameworks is to challenge the idea of having universal values that apply to all cultures because even though we can for example share some like basic uh principles of of living and being in the world like for example i don't know freedom the way we understand freedom is very different uh, depending on the culture and the context we live in so that is like a very <laughs> short response to your first you. yeah i think we can we can dig in, into it a bit more um but uh, the other reason i felt confident to put epistemologies in the in the question was i know that yasmin is working uh on topics related to research which is related to epistemology how do we learn about things so uh yasmin you may have very different things to say or you may say um oh i completely agree but uh how, how do you think about data ethics and epistemology well, I completely agree with Paula, of course. <laughs> the thing is, it, like if we, if we take a step back from that, um, and to Paula's point of like the origins of knowledge, like there's a misconception that technology um, is, is born of the West, and there's this very Eurocentric idea that um, countries in the global South have you know were completely helpless before colonialism happened and then the colonialists kind of brought technological knowledge to these uh, like barbaric helpless people um, and I think like obviously that's wrong but that ideology has permeated our educational institutions um, and it's really shaped the way that we design technology since um, there's a sort of arrogance, but also it means that we design uh, technological products um, in a way that's not as creative as it could be. Um, so one way to address the, uh, the misconception that all technology is born of the West and all um, scientific knowledge is born of the West uh, is through art, I would say. Um, and we've seen a kind of, like one particular project that comes to mind is by um, Alan Cudicio. Uh, and he made a game called the Wagadougou Chronicles. And for that, he did lots and lots of research on um, cultures in sub-Saharan Africa and the technologies that they used before coloniality. Um, and I think it's so tragic that, you know, those were not allowed to 
continue and evolve because the way that we design AI products especially has been intellectually stunted, stunted because of that. Um, so that's where like, we are at. Uh, so there is work to be done in dismantling these misconceptions of origins of knowledge. Um, and secondly, there's work to be done in uh, kind of proving the point and designing AI products that um, demonstrate that actually you can build better things uh, when you acknowledge that knowledge is not um, a kind of Western product. So, so this this reminds me of a really interesting tension in Paula's paper. Um, so maybe we can flip on to topic two. How do you how do you address this in 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 your work, uh, Paula? One of the interesting kind of tensions in the paper is um, um, you talk about the stuff that we've been talking about now, but then you also talk about this this topic of resistance and someone who is a researcher in Mexico building a website. And it's a very um, a very uh, kind of sobering topic. It's it's a website about uh, femicide, um, violent assault and death on on women, and it documents all the circumstances and stuff. So it's a very grim um, topic, but of course a, a very needed one. You sort of say the official numbers, the official statistics don't um, cover this, but uh, she and I guess her team have used some open source software um, to to get this information out there. And it's it's literally life or death information for people to, to understand this. So that seemed to be an interesting example about related to a creative use of technology. Okay, in this case, it's a map. It may be not the most creative use of technology, but it's still, it's, it's very different from the other part of the paper you're talking about, which is a more extractive use of technology. Um, so it, it I, I wonder if you can talk more about that. Because I also know this is a paper where you're talking about you know her work and, and you're doing it as a researcher but you you yourself have just mentioned some networks and stuff that you're working with and on so i wonder if you wanted to, to to go a bit more into how you engage with the things we've been talking about yeah thank you joe um yeah of course um uh, i work trying to understand the way uh, datification and and um this extractive process happens in the world and how does it link to traditional system, systems of oppression like capitalism, colonialism, and, and patriarchy. Um, but at the same time, I'm trying to collect and understand cases and where women especially, not only like people in general, but women in the social South are trying to resist datification or uh, trying to resist um, this uh, patriarchal way of, of reading data or processing data. So for the Mexican state, um, femicides are not relevant in the sense that there is not a policy, a gender-based policy, where we can actually collect this data and prosecute uh, the 
basically men that are particular is is very interesting because it shows all, all these uh oh we're getting a bit of uh, we're getting a little bit of freezing going on so um i think it may it may have healed itself but uh it may not have because paul looks very still well i, um, I can speak a little bit to um what uh paolo is describing yeah um, because the the work i do with no tech for tyrants is specifically addressing uh violent tech and uh, like we we kind of um, collaborate well with uh, Mihente, um, and that's a that's a kind of human rights organisation um, in South America that advocates for migrant rights, um, and it's it's a long process of trying to dismantle. Uh, the relationship between um, public organisations and violent tech organisations, which, as Paula described, are extractive. Uh, specifically, they extract the personal data and then use it to harm uh, black and brown people. Um, a particular campaign is No Tech for Ice, uh, where you know, we're trying to make the point that we don't want to hand over public contracts to organisations um, which end up doing harm to the public and specifically uh, minority groups or people of less power. I mean, I, I think that uh, uh, with some of these themes that I've been talking about with Paul, Paula in mind, I read a book called uh, Columbus and Other Cannibals, which is um, by a North American, he's deceased now, but a Native American author. Um, and he points out that like coloniality kind of is an ideology which exists, for example, inside of Britain. It's not like it's it's purely in other place. Now, I don't know if you would agree about that, though. What do you think? Because I mean, I, I'm, you know, from North America. So to me, it's like very clearly uh a country i guess built on you know built on stolen land it's a colonial force even now what how do you think about that here in in the uk um and and how i mean you're working very internationally but like what do you think about it you know here in london for example do you see the same issue well, showing up i can so my my concern is specifically with um with respect to personal data. So we can see these neo-colonial behaviors manifest in data collection and what happens with that data. In the UK, um, and it's another kind of story that uh, we at No Tech for Tyrants are doing, it's quite disturbing how the government has made partnerships with companies like Palantir who mm are known to be extractive and to create violent tech products that end up um, re-harming minority groups. Uh, at the same time, I'm seeing uh, various government initiatives on constructing uh, AI ethics boards. 
which on the face of it is like a noble endeavor. But when I looked at these boards and who's involved, they do not represent the people um, that these AI products will eventually affect. Um, and it's kind of like one step forward, two steps back. Uh, you know, when, when you see that the government is giving contracts to private firms without adequate tendering process or due diligence, and then you see them uh, create ethics boards to that almost kind of gives themselves permission for just continuing with their behavior. Um, it's such a feeling of powerlessness. Uh, and that's why we have to think creatively about elbowing our way into these conversations. Sorry, I'm, I, speaking of elbowing my way in, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't uh, wholly distracted. I'm trying to see if I can get um, Paolo to, con to connect via telegram. So it's, uh, uh, okay, I will, I will see if I can call her now. Um, so, um, Let's just see here. Um, but um, what I, I guess I would say that that the the question I would have about um, you know AI ethics boards and stuff is like okay, well, what what can we do about that as as normal people? Because you know I don't work for Google or Palantir, and yes, I don't personally buy Palantir products, but I know some people who have worked at Palantir. I could tell them to stop that. But like, what what uh, what do you think we can kind of do about this? And I'm at the meantime, just trying to call Paola. So feel free to so, um, uh, extemporize. This is basically what my work involves. Um, I, as a creative technologist, try to build things uh, to, to make a case for ethical technology. Um, I'm very much a believer of building products make a point rather than endless reports in the hope that some think tank will eventually turn that into something that looks like policy. Um, so one thing that is really exciting uh, is kind of thinking of creative uses for AI um, and kind of dismantling the idea that uh, it's so unbelievably complex and unknowable, kind of opening up participation. And that's where the internet is really useful because you can design platforms and invite lots of different people to have their say, and then from that construct a framework for ethical uses of AI, for example. Um, and that's the so, yeah. oops, uh, I can't uh, get the audio um, off of my um, computer and into my phone, uh, but I may be able to get uh, Paula's voice off of this phone and into the computer. Paula, are you sure, there? I'll, I'll call her, okay? We okay, can, Charlotte can, is calling you. You can just uh, focus on the topic. Um, Hello. Okay, Charlotte yeah. is gonna call you now. Uh, okay. Well, uh, okay. So they're, they're trying to get, uh, get audio spliced in. So, um, so, ah, so the, the last slide I had here was like, how can we work 
on how can we learn from your work in this pedagogy project? So, you know, maybe just carrying on with this topic of like, it's not completely beyond us to work with technology, although right now it's giving us a big uh, pain in the neck with the uh, internet being um, a bit touchy, but that's okay. That happens from time to time. Um, so this, uh, for those who are on video, here's a little tiny kind of mock-up of, of keeping track of some of our own data. So this is not really extractive. It's like, hey, this is our data. Um, and we will have a chance to do a, one of these kind of reviews that we sometimes do after um, after such sessions, you know, to, to create a data source ourselves, which we can then use. And, you know, we're trying to build a bit of technology to help m manage that. But I feel like that's very naive. So I feel like you and Paola would both have things to say that's a bit less naive maybe from an ethical standpoint and a bit maybe maybe we could push things a bit further. Um, so yeah, sorry, the questions that maybe feels a little bit out of the blue, if it's a matter of like, well, we don't, we, I need to know more about the um, the review methods and stuff you, you're using, but yeah, feel free to interview me. You can ask me questions about uh, how we are using technology if you want to, or just say, you know, here's something you must do. How, how can we in this kind of global collaboration learn from your work? Well, I suppose one question that I would have for the wider pedagogy, um, pedagogy or pedagogy? Uh, a little bit of however you like it. Yeah, yeah pedagogy is how I say. Uh, is how, and it's it's a question I kind of have for myself: is how do you involve people who are not academically inclined? Because um, I think, you know, personally, most of the people that I collaborate with happen to be academics or technologists or industry people or other or artists and just like people who are already concerned and active but what I'm really interested in um, is getting the people who like who are affected by this like rapid technological development uh, who have something to say but there is no real forum for that because you know our governments just do a really bad job of getting like meaningful public participation so i guess my question is what how are you working to incorporate meaningful public participation um so i would say that it's a it's a multi-layer process but this is definitely something that that uh charlotte will remind us of a lot of times is like this is not a book really written for um academics it's it, so when we're talking about book there's this pedagogy handbook that we are writing um and that's one of our things aside from the podcast that we like to make so like we like to make things as a way of learning i think that that i think that that resonates with what you're talking about with art um but the things we make aren't Sometimes they are academic papers. There are some of those, but there's other other things we've tried to make together, like this book um, and the podcast, which are um, a bit more accessible. And of course, with those things, you know, there's always a matter of marketing, and then there's a matter of this and that. And you get into really nitty gritty stuff that, as a as an academic, you sort of don't have to think about, or you you could get away without thinking about it. Let's say. Um, but I think that in terms of the engagement, I would like it if this stuff was kind of 
you know, I think if we were ever going for grants or funding or something and we could say, oh, look, you know, hundreds of people have used this and it's really revolutionized X rather than this is something that we really enjoy doing ourselves and we think it's really fun and we think other people will have fun with it too. I think the former could be a bit more flashy. So, um, you know, I would say pyragogy is often cited in, in the literature on MOOCs, um, massive open online courses. And um, so they must find the concept useful, but in terms of like, what are we actually doing? You know, one thing that's come up would be how could we make our own massive open online course? So we haven't built one yet, but we have done some course design and it's like, how do you design a course that's not just taught from the top down, but is actually built by the participants? So those are some of the ideas that we've been exploring. I don't think we can say, oh yeah, we've, we've nailed it and it's, it's going great. We've built this you know, massive open online course, which is subscribed by you know, loads of people around the world. But um, in the broader sense in which pure gaiji is like a reflection on other practices that we don't have to do ourselves, but maybe going on and other places that we can learn with and from those people. Certainly some of the other stuff I've been involved with is about that. So this Planet Math website I used to work on was called Math for the People by the People. And it was like, you know, a, really was a kind of global peer produced resource. So, um, but yeah, I think I think just engaging people in the process of writing is, 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 is challenging. Some people don't love writing. And so books, are less accessible in some ways than podcasts. Uh, so um, Charlotte has appeared. So I guess you have not managed to uh, retrieve uh, Paula from the- uh, I have very little of the expertise that Paula has, but um, here, here she, she is. is. Yeah, oh, that's let me great. put myself out on a hurry. Okay. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm sorry, I don't know what happened. I'm sorry that it didn't work out to get you on Telegram, but I'm so glad you're here. Uh, that was an interesting, unexpected turn of of events. Um, but of course, we can keep talking if if there's if there's time. But I think, uh, yeah. Um, so, Yasmin and I were talking about this late this last question: of How can this work inform our work on pyragogy? So I think that you may have disappeared just as we were asking that other question: How do you address it in your in your in your work, but um, you know, you've been a part of the Puragaji project for quite a while, so maybe it's a good question for you. Is how do you see Puragaji helping? Maybe not yet, but maybe we could do more in this, um, in this, uh, you know, to align more with the other themes you were talking about before. Well, um, I think Puragaji, as you know, um, is a way of of doing things um, collectively. Uh, thinking together and producing knowledge together. And I think one, one of the issues that uh, happens usually is that every um, technology is usually developed by a very small group of people, usually white men in industrialized countries. And also data uh, reflect that bias. Uh, data that is collected is mainly data uh, processed uh, with this like Western bias as well. So if we could um, think of different processes and methodologies of doing things, uh, for example, there is this framework about feminist data 
and and also there are all other frameworks like indigenous data frameworks that explain that not only the the results of data processing or or extraction is is important but also the way we think around data collection the ways data um relates to the needs of certain community and also the ways in data uh, gives back to the community in the sense that if we extract something from the community, we should give back that uh, as well. So that, that is mainly what we try to do with pedagogy. We try to learn together, we're trying to address the needs of the community and we try to give back not only to the community that is working to produce knowledge collectively, but also to the broader community as well. That's thank you so much. Why. That's that that really uh that 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 is not only was what you just said amazing, but you also showed this really great uh graphic. I wonder if we could get that back again. That that was says uh, Ricarte 2020. So, um, I, I think that this provides a uh, could provide some interesting guidance for us to reflect on some more there's another there's another example we were talking about um which which i don't know if we've, if we've shared this article but it was about um centers for people who i think had actually survived uh this um survived the kinds of things which would otherwise become femicides you know domestic violence and stuff like that and helping them this was in mexico helping them learn things like knitting and crafting and stuff like that. I'll see if I can find the article. Um, but I was so impressed by it as an example of pyragogy where they don't they don't call it pyragogy. They've never heard of us and what we do, but I felt like a real kindred spirit with what they what they were doing. I wonder if maybe does it is it helpful to kind of reach out to some other efforts or you know do I as a white male uh, from the US should I just uh, mind my own business? How 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 do you think um, I mean, this isn't really a matter of like allyship. It's just a matter of how do we do pyragogy in this context in which like, I would be really interested to learn, you know, what makes these places work well for the women who are, you know, like well, entering the space. Well, I was speaking earlier about resistance and, and I work with, with women's collectives and, and women's collectives that are working in the, in the technology area. Uh, and, and what, it's amazing for me is the way that women like do things differently in the sense, at least women in the global south that are not uh, part of the like dominant uh, system without any resources, material resources, they try to imagine and, and, and challenge the dominant technologies from the way they think it's good for them and their communities. And, and the, the image that you shared before um, reflects what for me is the idea that resistance and also agency, collective agency goes from the body through all the territories that are intertwined when we speak about technology. The body being the first territory, but the earth being our collective territory and, and all the internet and, and layers that are involved uh, in that, in the sense that internet could be also understood as another territory that should be um, 
disputed from power. Cool. I, I, I think, oh, yeah, so uh, we're getting Robert Best here. So I think that it's, it, it's interesting uh, with some comments or whatever. I think you like the technology that we're using to present uh, present the um, podcast. So um, Yasmin, would you want to respond to any of what we just saw and we're hearing about? Um, mm -hmm. I, I guess typically we'd keep to a half an hour, but because we're, we had a little bit of lost time, I think we should, you know, like, yeah, start to, to think about how we want to close things up. So um, response, maybe moving towards closing. Uh, what do you think? So um, to Paolo's point of the participation and meaningful participation rather than extractive, mm. particularly with um, people away from power, uh, for my own project, I was thinking of some sort of social contract that I'm trying to develop when, as a researcher, you know, I, I need people's knowledge that I don't have. And in particularly kind of... Uh, Western um, anthropological practice, it's historically been extractive. You know, people go to a group of people and they you know, take knowledge from them and then use it in their own work. And often those people never reap the benefits of that research or the products that are made of that. And I'm just trying to think, well, how can we do better as researchers and practitioners? And I'm trying to craft a kind of reciprocal kind of participation social contract sort of thing mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to see Paolo maybe can you think of any such uh, social contracts between you know somebody who is seeking knowledge and uh, participants um, and uh, yeah what kind of do you know of any projects that have done that successfully oh she seems frozen. Oh, no, okay. No, she's good. <laughs> so what do you think? Is, do you know of uh, existing social contracts? I know that some of your, your colleagues had this uh, de uh, governance, but that's that's very different from sort of social contracts with the end users of the, of the, um, well, yes, maybe, maybe would you say a little bit more about like a specific, you know, walk us through a specific example, like a really kind of succinct example that might be like, here it is, it might be easier to find other examples or other frameworks that, yeah. Yeah, so for example, if we wanted to learn more about um, the healthcare needs of a group of people, um, mm -hmm. or an NGO, and you know, you've got some funding to provide something to a group of people who are, who need a certain type of healthcare, and you want to know, you know, what are your medical needs right now, um, and you need to extract personal medical information. Uh, how can you, in your communication with them, make it clear exactly what they will get out of it should they consent to you taking that knowledge from them? I see, I see, yeah. Well, I would definitely say it doesn't sound like the, the state, uh, Mexican state is, um, is providing this kind of sensitivity uh, at all. Um, so yeah, uh, Paula, what, what do you think? Have you, have you come across such kinds of contracts for researchers, like kind of research ethics and how we as researchers work with um, people who we do research on or re research with? Have you come across any such things? Well, um, of course, um, I think 
um, research in some sense tends to reproduce extractive uh, processes or yeah. patterns. Um, so from a feminist standpoint, um, we try to avoid those, those practices. Mm. Um, and there is a there is a framework that I uh, use, which is the design justice framework, mm -hmm. uh, and also it's very close to some of the ethical frameworks to work with data that come from non-Western communities, from indigenous communities, from example from New Zealand, um, and is more than is not thinking about research as a process that you lead and in you conceive and, and you uh, like put in, in to work, but uh, rather uh, put in your abilities uh, at the service of the community and, and try to like just be uh, an intermediary for their needs and 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 purposes. So it's not uh, that you as a researcher are going to go to the community and, and, and extract again their data and their information for your ends, but rather uh, do what, uh, there's a, an anthropologist from Brazil called Rita Segato and, and she speaks about um, like public, doing public anthropology or, or putting anthropology at the serp service of the community in the sense that is the community what is going, who is going to decide the questions and the way the research is going to be done and not you as a researcher, it's the other way around. Sounds like a spirit anyway, if, if it's not a framework, it's at least someone who's, who shares some of these same, same viewpoints. It, it, it strikes me as well that maybe um, Eleanor Ostrom would be another kind of uh, relevant person to bring into the conversation at one point, because she certainly has frameworks, but um, you know, it, it, it's frameworks her ideas about local solutions to local problems. So, um, okay, this is just a random picture of, of some uh, data silos. Maybe that's a funny thing to close with though, is, is uh, maybe it is good that we should all be kind of finding good ways to work across so that we're not just on these little data islands and that we could um, share share good practices and stuff. So, uh, okay. Um, I would love to, uh, say, yeah, anyone, anyone wants to put any, any, um, last words, but I would love to, I would love to also say that I'm sure we could talk about these topics, um, more, um, but for the sake of the listeners who may be wanting to, uh, move on with their day or night, wherever they may be, uh, listening to the replay, uh, I guess we should wrap up. So, yep. Uh, I'm Joe, uh, Charlotte appeared briefly, um, Thank you, Charlotte, for making this happen. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks to Robert and whoever else is watching for for tuning in. Hey there, Charlotte. Um, so, do you, do you guys want to do one more round of Q and A with Charlotte, or should we uh, say goodbye? Charlotte, do you have any questions or thoughts you want to share here? Not really, but I mean, I do. I'm a publisher, and I have, mm. as a result of my experience with Piragaji, I have just gone around to being a collaborator partner with my authors you know so i bring my expertise and they bring the creative part and 
it's it's a little bit messy sometimes, but it's it's only way I like to work now because I feel like I'm part of a you know a per, you know, have a purpose of you know, part of some creating something instead of just a transactional. So I you know that's what I've gotten out of Puragaji in some ways. Yeah, I think it's it's very much that it infuses the kinds of stuff that we do. And I, I think we can see that in this kind of sense of, of, of a research context as well. So um, perhaps even even without using the word, uh, maybe this is kind of pureagogical research where you're working together with people to shape even what it's research about. So, um, okay, for those here and anyone watching live, uh, Charlotte's put up a link, meet.jit.c slash puragaji. So we're going to close down the live stream um, now, but we will reconvene those who are interested there for a um, little uh, post discussion and follow up question. There's there's a we, we tend to do this review. And in fact, um, Charlotte, would you would you be OK to show then the next slide just because we're talking about research methods? Uh, we we have this framework that we um, oops there. Where to go? Yeah, mm -hmm. the one Piragaji project action review that we um, like to ask certain questions about um, kind of how it's how it's gone and how it's going. And so it might be interesting as an, another example um, about a framework. It's not really a contract, but it's a it's a little tiny um, piece of what could be a contract. So um, any famous last words here? Uh, thank you so much both for being on. Um, and um, yeah, uh, I hope that we will um, get, a, get further chances to discuss later. But uh, closing comments are welcome as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Bye.